but I'd encourage you to open the Word of God to Psalm 57. We continue on in Pastor Matt's um, absence, the Summer in the Psalms series. Tonight we're looking at a Psalm of David, the 57th Psalm. Looking forward to walking through this with you. It's been an encouragement to my heart, a challenge to my heart, and I trust the Lord uses it to encourage you and strengthen your faith this evening. Elizabeth Elliot lived a life of pain. We perhaps know Elizabeth Elliot most famously for the loss of her first husband, Jim Elliot, when he and four other men were martyred as they tried to take the gospel to the hostile Auka Indian tribe. But many do not know that Elizabeth Elliot also lost her second husband, Addison Leitch, to cancer. It was in December of 1976, in an address to the Urbana Missions Conference, that Mrs. Elliot told of being in Wales and watching a shepherd and his dog. The dog would herd the sheep up a ramp and into a tank of antiseptic in which they had to be bathed to protect them from parasites. As soon as they would come up out of the tank, the shepherd would grab the rams by the horns and fling them back into the tank and hold them under the antiseptic for a few more seconds. Elizabeth, startled by this practice, asked the shepherd's wife if the sheep understood anything at all what was happening to them. The shepherd's wife replied, they don't have a clue. Elizabeth said, I've had some experiences in my life that have made me feel very sympathetic to these poor rams. I couldn't figure out any reason at all for the treatment I was getting from the great shepherd that I trusted. And he didn't give me a hint of explanation. You ever felt that way? Lord, what are you doing? King David had been going through quite an experience, which is the fruit of, or which this psalm is a fruit of. You notice that the superscript mentions that this is a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. The Lord showed his blessing upon David's life. He anointed David to be the king in the stead of Saul. But since that anointing, a lot hadn't gone right for, Pastor, or for King David. For seven years he lived in the palace, but for four years of which he penned this psalm, he spent his life running from the sword of King Saul. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 29, he tells Jonathan, his friend, my soul is one step away from death. And of course, we know why Saul is doing this, right? Why is he pursuing David? Because he's just in seeking his death? No, because Saul had slain his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. Saul was jealous. And David spent four long years being on the run for his life from King Saul. And likely, 1 Samuel 21 through 24 in one of those cave dwellings is what David is reflecting on when he writes this psalm. And you have to assume that David, at some point in those four years, being a shepherd, had some frank conversations with his chief shepherd. Lord, why are you grabbing me and repeatedly dunking me into this tank of antiseptic? Aren't I clean enough yet? And we're going to see in this psalm that David had grown to learn something deeper about his trials. Just like David, we don't always understand why God allows us to suffer, but this text teaches us what God expects from us in 
our suffering. So I would propose to you this evening that David's response to this trial in the cave, this doxology in the dark, teaches us that we should seek to exalt the glory of God in our trials. We should seek to exalt the glory of God in our trials. Father God, thank you for leading us, for guiding us, for perfectly establishing our steps. Thank you, Lord, for your ownership of your children when we stray from the path, for your faithful bringing us back to where we need to be. Thank you for this example of David in a very real and vulnerable time in his life where he gives you praise and seeks to exalt you in his most painful and mysterious of trials. Lord, I pray that we would depart this evening trusting more deeply in you and the plan that you have for each of our lives individually, but also, Lord, resolving to give you praise each step along the way. In Christ's name we ask, amen. We should seek to exalt the glory of God in our trials. How does David seek to exalt the glory of God while facing this trial in the cave? Let me give you some points that help us to see how David teaches us to seek the exaltation of God. Before we get to the points, you may have noticed when Doug was reading this, the text, verses 5 and 11 stand out. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. David repeats that doxology twice in verse 5 and verse 11. This is what he's seeking to do, to exalt the glory of his God in his trials. How does he do this? Well, first of all, David reminds himself of God's compassion. David reminds himself of God's compassion. The beginning of verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. David speaks a double imperative command to God to grace him, to see his plight and show him pity, to show him compassion. David is imploring God to move and act because of his situation. Why is David asking God this way? David is appealing to the character and the compassion of his great God. I found it interesting as I was studying that these words at the beginning of verse 1 and 57, be gracious to me, O God, are the same words that we see in the beginning of Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, the confession of David with his sin with Bathsheba, David says, be gracious to me, O God, or have mercy upon me, O God. A confessional have mercy. But here David is, is appealing for God's mercy, not when he has sinned, but when he is in a difficult situation and he must appeal to the character of God's compassion. What is David teaching us with this appeal? On what basis do you make your appeal to God? Do you make your appeal to God's mercy because of your goodness or upon God's goodness? David is saying, Lord, I appeal to your goodness to rescue me from this situation, not because I deserve it, but because you're compassionate and merciful. When was the last time you approached your great God in prayer with the humility of David? In your trial, in your pain, how often do we approach God this way? God, I've been extra good lately. Haven't you taken notice? I went to church four times last week. I even tithed a little extra. 
I helped so-and-so. Now, Lord, here's what I want you to do. What are you appealing to God in that moment based upon? God's compassion or your merit? That is our first instinct when we find ourselves in a trial, beloved, isn't it? God, you owe me to get me out of this mess. You're my father. I'm your child. This is what parents do. Get me out of this mess. But David is appealing not to his right to be removed, not to his human merit, but to God's compassion and character, not David's character and merit. So how do we apply this to our lives? I give you this application. Refuse to play the victim card. Refuse to play the victim card. Have you ever played the victim card? Absolutely. Now, hold on a second. Is David a victim in this situation? Is he? Yes. David is a victim of King Saul. What Saul is doing is completely wicked and unjust. And David is a victim of his schemes. But is David a victim of God? I would say no. He is not a victim of God. And I mentioned before, I'm sure during his four years on the run, that David remind God, God, you are the one who appointed me to be the next king. This was your idea, not my idea. Why do I have to be on the run year after year after year? I don't deserve this. I am a victim of your will. And I'm only in this mess because of your will, and you're obligated to get me out of this mess. That's not what David does here. David says, be gracious to me, O God. Give me what I do not deserve, rescue. Have mercy upon me, O God. Do not give me what I do deserve. David wants to whine. David wants to complain. But he reminds himself of God's compassion. And he appeals to God's compassion, not as a victim, but as one who trusts his good and loving shepherd. In our trials is our response, oh Lord, I know I don't deserve it, but would you rescue me based on your compassion and character? That is where David starts. Is that how we start our conversation with God in our trials? Don't play the victim card. Appeal to God's compassion and character. And then number two, the second half of verse one, David takes refuge in God alone. And this is David's appeal. God, be gracious to me, for I take refuge in you. David takes refuge in God alone. And this verb, to take refuge, is the idea of covering oneself or hiding oneself pretty much in an instantaneous sort of way. And I think we can all see this, or if we remember this illustrated a couple of weeks ago. What meteorological phenomenon happened a couple weeks ago in the, in the Plymouth Golden Valley area around 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon. Anybody remember? A hailstorm. Did anybody get caught in that hailstorm? And what did all of you selfish people do when you were driving? You took off for the first underpass you could find, didn't you? And you parked there and took refuge so that I could not from the storm. <laughs> and some of you took your vehicles and parked under the overhang here at Fourth Baptist Church so that I could not. I'm teasing. 
But what did we do? We instantly, in the destruction, in the storm, we take refuge because we need help. And David is saying, I'm not running from the destruction. I'm not running from the storm. God, I'm running to you in this storm. Immediately, you're my only hope. There's nothing else I can run to. Now think back to King David's life. Has David always done this? Back in Psalm 34, a pen or a psalm penned from David's experience in fleeing the terror of a political coup. And what does David do? What's the story behind Psalm 34? He flees, he lies to a priest, he eats bread he's not supposed to, he's enamored with the sword of Goliath and says, give it to me, there's none like it. And he goes into Philistia, to Gath, and thinks the enemy of my enemy will be my friends. And what does it do? Or what happens to David? It completely backfires. David did not take refuge in God alone in the past. But David is essentially saying, I'm not going to go back to Gath like I did where I miserably failed. Psalm 13, David is saying, I'm not going to go back to refusing to look at you because I feel abandoned and I suffered through those long, dark days. David is saying, I'm not going to go back to laying in the mud of my sin and despair like Psalm 40 and Psalm 70 taught us. David says, I'm going to run to you, God, now until the storm passes. So what's the application here? Run to God in your problems. That sounds so simple, but is that what you do? Do you run to God instantly when you encounter a problem? Things are going well. Suddenly things are not going well. Is God your first call? To whom do you run? To what do you run? To what substance do you run? To what attitude do you run? Be honest with yourself right now. Do you run away from your trials towards something other than God? Are you a person who trusts in his own plans during your unexpected problems? Or are you a person who entrusts himself to God in his problems? Now, you think about who David is. Is David a meek and mild guy? Is David a pushover? Of all people who could probably go challenge Saul one-on-one in a sword or spear fight, it would be David. And David would probably win. I can see David saying, I'm going to be an eagle. I'm going to be an almighty eagle who just grabs his prey, takes him up and throws him down and wins. But what does David portray himself here as? God, I am going to be a little lowly chick. And I am going to run in the most vulnerable, tender way into the protection of your wing over me. I am nothing unless your refuge is my shelter. Does that describe our attitude in our trials? Keep in mind here, where was David? Or where was he reflecting upon when he wrote this psalm? He was in a cave. A cave might actually be a pretty good source of shelter. It was working. But David even here says, the cave is not my refuge, O God. You are my refuge. 
I'm very tempted for us to sing right now. We won't do that. But I would actually encourage you to take your hymnal. I very often put together sermons or think of application through hymn texts. Take a look at hymn 466 in your hymnal. We won't sing it, but just read with me verses 1 and 2 of this great hymn by Charles Wesley. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, oh my Savior, hide till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, oh receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed, all my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. David takes refuge in God alone. And David runs to God in the immediacy of his trial. Thirdly, David recalls that God has a plan. David recalls that God has a plan. Now be honest again. Have you ever been so, have you ever so overthought what God's plan is in your trial that you actually failed to remember God has a plan? You ever been there? You're so overthinking, God, what are you doing that you actually forget that God has a plan? Look how David moves on in verse 2. I will cry to El Elyon, God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. David went on to explain that his prayers were addressed to God Most High, a title referring to God's transcendence above this world and the problems of this world. And David is saying, because God is the sovereign ruler of creation, nothing will thwart God's promised plan and purposes for David. And David takes comfort in this truth. And have you ever asked yourself, if God is sovereign, why should I pray? Have you ever asked yourself that? If God is sovereign, why should I pray? Well, I hope that God is sovereign, because why pray if God is not sovereign? If God were not sovereign over the affairs of this world, over the wills of sinful men, all we could do is ask, and all God could do was proverbially shrug his shoulders and say, hope it works out for you. I hope we end up winning. But David appeals to God most high. That is why David says boldly in verse 2, God accomplishes all things for me. In this trial, in this situation where I'm surrounded, where I feel hopeless, God accomplishes all things for me. The language David uses in verses 2 and 3 is a progression of this realization of God's sovereignty. God is most high. 
He has a sovereign plan for my life that no one can thwart. And he will come in loving kindness and truth and make it happen. And he'll cut down anybody who stands in his way trying to prevent it from happening. David says, God's got this. Why am I worrying? God's got this. God has me exactly where God wants me to be. I don't have to worry. God has a plan for my life. God will bring his plan to my life, for my life, to reality. So what's David's application? We can rest in God's provident sovereignty over our lives. Rest in God's provident sovereignty over your life. Now when I say rest in God's sovereignty, does that mean we just let go, sit back, and stop working in our trials or even stop trying to, by human means, fix our problems? This is a difficult thing. Do we just lay down and make God fight all of our battles or do we continue in our human means to walk in God's sovereign providence over our life? That's not an easy question to answer. And I want to bring to your mind an example from the life of King David where he puts this application truly into action. We don't have to turn there, but do you remember in 1 Samuel 24, what opportunity comes upon David in the cave? It just so happens that David is in the cave where King Saul decides to make a bathroom break. And what does David's servants tell David? David, kill him. Not because you deserve to get your vengeance, but because God has delivered King Saul into your hands. They appealed to God. What does David do? No, this is not God's will. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I will not use human means to get myself out of this trial. I don't have to worry about Saul. God is the one who is going to deal with Saul in his own time, in his own sovereign providence. And David delivers Saul from his hands. It's an amazing testimony. What would you have done in that situation? I'm afraid to answer what I would have done. Very often, people are our biggest sources of frustration. And aren't we very often tempted when we have an opportunity to put people in their place and establish ourselves over them and cut them down so the problem goes away? David rests in God's provident sovereignty over his life. David says, God is the one who is loyal. He is the one who has steadfast covenant love that anoints me. It has anointed me to replace Saul, and God will deal with Saul in his own time and his own perfect way. This is an amazing example of God, or of David resting his life in God's sovereign providence. Let's move on to number four. Number four, David recognizes God is bigger than his problems. David recognizes that God is bigger than his problems. 
Look at verse 4. David had problems. David poetically describes his situation here. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Skip to verse 6. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. This poetic language here that David uses to describe his enemies is very descriptive. What is David saying? They're bigger, they're stronger, they have more facial hair, whatever. They're tough. There's nothing that I can do to get out of this net that they have spread out for me, that they have prepared for me. There's nothing that I can do. My problems are big. But then in the midst of this description, David reminds himself of this reality of his great God in verse 5. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. My problems are of this earth, but my God is bigger than my problems and is above the earth. My problems are big, yet my God is the one who will establish his glory above everything on the earth. David is again commanding God to unleash himself, to exalt himself, to bring glory to himself by conquering David's enemies. That's why in the end of verse number six, he says this, they dug a pit for me, before me, but they themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Do you believe that God is bigger than your problems? Honestly, right now, do you believe that God is bigger than your problems? Then this is the application for us. Remember to watch God work. Remember to watch God work. This is not easy for us. Do you remember Israel's hard time in remembering that God was bigger than their problems? What did God do for Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt? He redeemed them from Egypt. What did Israel do after God redeemed them from Egypt and they found themselves trapped between Pharaoh and the sea? They feared Pharaoh more than the God who redeemed them from Egypt. Just a few days after God saved Israel supernaturally by allowing them to cross over on dry ground through a sea. Just a few days later, Israel was whining and grumbling that they were going to die from a lack, get this, of water. They feared the lack of water more than the God who had just divided the waters before them. Do we have a hard time remembering that God is bigger than our problems? Later, when the spies report back from the promised land, Israel fears the people of the land more than the God who gave the land to them. Do you remember that God is bigger than your problems? Yes, we have problems. Do we have big problems? Yes, we've got big problems. But God is bigger than our problems. And the bigger your problem is, the bigger opportunity God has to exalt his glory above all the earth. So sit back and watch him work in your trials. I love how David uses this this trio of verses to say this. I I have big problems. I'm, I'm among lions who breathe forth fire 
And yet my God will exalt himself and the very pits that they have dug, they're falling into. It's amazing what God does. And friend, I don't want to minimize the trial you're going through. I have no idea what you're going through or what you have been through. I know it hurts. I know it's painful. I know that there doesn't seem like there's any end to it. But remind yourself of David's situation. David was being pursued by the most powerful person on the planet with the most unlimited resources at his discretion to hunt down David. And David is reminding himself here that As Charles Spurgeon said, even though he is surrounded by lions, it is God who holds the leash on those lions. Are you watching and waiting for God to work in your trials? That's not easy to do. If you're like me, you're whining and complaining until God gets rid of your trials. But God's strength is greater than anything we face. So watch him work in your trials. And then lastly, number five, David resolves to give God praise. David resolves to give God praise. There's a verse in the Bible that really does not make sense to me. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. I like to sing, but I feel like this is a bit extreme. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Singing at midnight in prison? That takes some resolve, doesn't it? I'm one to burst out into song as much as anybody else, but midnight in prison? That takes some resolve. Doxology in the dark is not natural. Praise is not a natural response to pain. That's why David resolves himself to give God praise. In verse 7, he says, My heart is steadfast, O God. Again, this repeated language. My heart is steadfast. It is fixed. It is prepared to praise. This is the same Hebrew root that was used back in verse number 6 to describe the the prepared nets. They were prepared and laid out. David says, my heart is laid out and prepared to praise in the midst of all of these trials that I'm facing. I am resolved to praise. Yes, I will sing praises. Is that our resolve in our pain, in our trials like King David? I love the picture that verse 8 gives us. David says, awake my soul, awake my glory. Awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. I picture David going to the mouth of the cave and perhaps Saul is out there. And David is essentially just saying, can't do anything to me, Saul, that God doesn't allow. I'm not your problem, Saul. God's your problem. I'm going to sing his praises. I'm not going to fear you. David resolves to praise. Verse 9, David refuses to keep his praise private, but he takes it public. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. I'm going to talk to others about the Most High God, who is compassionate, 
who is trustworthy, who is sovereign, who is omnipotent, and who has me and my enemies right where he wants us. I'm going to sing his praises. In verse 10, he says, yeah, I've got problems, but let me tell you about my loyal covenant love God who is great to the heavens and whose truth is to the clouds. The earth has its problems, but God is above all of this. So be exalted above the heavens, O God, David repeats. Let your glory be above all the earth. Beloved, we must resolve to give God praise in a time of painful trial. We must give doxology in the dark because that's precisely the time where our enemy tempts to think tempts us to think that God is not good. So resolve to give God praise. And here's our last application. Reminisce in what God has done, is doing, and will do. I have to think that David, while he is anticipating what God will do, is also thinking about what the Lord is doing in his heart at this time to bring him to a point of humility and trust in God. I believe that David is remembering his past failures, but also remembering the faithfulness of his God in the past to rescue him out of many battles. I'm sure in the seven years that he fought for King Saul, there were many close calls where God spared David and showed David his grace. We often sing the old Fanny Crosby song, To God be the glory, great things he has done. And we go on to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory for the great things he has done. What great things has God done in your life? Perhaps this week it might be a good thing for you to intentionally reminisce in your own mind, with your friends, with your family, what God has done for you, is doing in you, and will do for you. Spend some time journaling in prayer, reflecting on all of God's acts of grace and mercy and kindness in your life. Rejoice in the salvation that he's given you through Jesus Christ, his son. Rejoice with one another how God is using these earthly trials to bring the heavenly glory of his son, Jesus Christ, in your life. He's stripping away what's left of you and replacing it from one level of glory to another, the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Rejoice in that process, as painful as it is. Rejoice with one another that no matter how difficult or confusing the trials are, God will never leave you or forsake you. He will not let your soul be lost. He will not let you slip and fall. He will hold you fast. And he will one day present you through the wonderful mercy of the resurrected Christ into his presence with full joy and full glory. So seek to exalt the glory of God in your trials, beloved. The same way that David shows us. If God puts you in a wilderness cave, he has you there for a reason. Trust him and plead for his compassion. If God allows people to seek your destruction, God is letting them do it for a reason. Trust him and watch him work in your life. 
If God puts you in a situation that makes you doubt his love and his goodness, remember the promise and demonstration of his mercy, grace, and salvation and his loyal love and faithfulness towards you and resolve to praise him. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. Thank you for how your word ministers to our souls. Thank you, Lord, even now for the memories that I have flooding my mind of how you have worked in the past, how you have exalted yourself, how you have fixed problems that, in my mind, seemed unfixable. And you showed yourself strong. You showed yourself mighty. You showed yourself to be El Shaddai, Almighty God, the God for which nothing is too hard. Nothing is impossible. Thank you for the example of David here, Lord, tonight, who in the past did not always plead based on your compassion, who did not always take his refuge in you alone first, who did not always remember that you are bigger than his problems, who did not always resolve to give you praise in the midst of trial. May we learn from his example May we apply these truths that he had to apply in his own day in such a way that we seek to exalt you in our trials that we face on this earth. Once again, trusting that you are the God above this earth whose glory fills the heavens and whose truth ascends to the clouds. And you will lift us up one day to be with you where you are, Lord, and all of this will be over. Thank you for your great faithfulness to us. In Christ's name we pray and give thanks. Amen.